Well, this year when I've had uh, the opportunity to preach, I've tried to be strategic about uh, what I speak to. I've tried to look at the landscape and speak to some things that are facing the people in this church and the church uh, around our country. I think that one of the major issues that has been an issue around much of the world and an issue is the issue of fear. Fear is not certainly not a new threat uh, to the human heart. It has been around since sin came in to the world. And while it gets a lot of discussion in our own time, the Bible has a lot to say about the subject of fear. The phrases, do not fear, do not be afraid, fear not, and so on, appear over 500 times within the body of, of Scripture. In our own time, fear has shown itself to be a dominating factor of life. Many would like to look to the mainstream media and place blame for, to them for capitalizing on a culture of fear, but I think that lets our own hearts off of the hook. The truth is that the mainstream media only reports things the way they do because that is what gets them the attention for their advertisers. Mainstream media does not create fear. Fear exists in our own hearts. The reality is that the human heart is drawn to things that make us fearful. It's something about us that always chooses to focus on what is unknown or uncertain. We like to have things wrapped up in tiny little packages. We like to know what is going on. We like to know the beginning and the end and how we're going to get there. When we don't know those things, our hearts produce fear. When we are uncertain of what is going to happen, our hearts respond with fear because we don't like that. We like to know what is predictable. We like to know that A and B will lead to C. The way that the media is so thoroughly dominant today and pervasive only feeds our lust for impending doom. As I sat and I, I preparation for this message, I decided to scroll through, through some news and wanted to, to have a full idea. And this is it's, it's to some of the subjects that draw out that fear within us. And so I'm, I'm going to go through a list here, and, and hopefully by the end of this list you are greatly afraid. But what are some of the things that draw out fear in our hearts? Fears, most obviously, surrounding COVID-19. The effects of the illness, maybe the vaccine, maybe the issue of masking, maybe the issue of mandates. Maybe there are fears over possible insurrections of faulty elections of political instability. Maybe you have fears of inflation, fears of economic collapse, fears of racist unrest, fears of environmental collapse. Maybe the rise of Islamic terrorism, fears of totalitarianism around our world, fears of unsecure borders, fears of unsecure and unsafe towns, Big tech fears, the fear of a degrading society. Maybe there's fear of an instability and unpredictability in Asia, fear of globalism, fear of empty shopping shelves and limited resources, 
Maybe there are fears of judicial abuse and constitutional neglect. And those are only some of the cultural fears that we all deal with and we're all faced with on a regular basis and that we're told should dominate our thinking and should create panic within our hearts. One only has to look at the rise of the language like existential crisis and doom scrolling to see how much this has become a part of our lives. 20 years ago, no one knew what an existential crisis was and no one had any foresight as to what doom scrolling would actually mean. We also must be honest that a lot of the fears that we have, we struggle with individually. That we don't need any outside help for these more individual fears. We fear health issues, relationship issues, loss of job or financial security, a fear of rejection, a fear of death, and so many more. Our hearts are drawn to fear things that we cannot control, circumstances that we would not want to go through. The reality is, is that our flesh is constantly on the, look, on the lookout for things that we can fear, things that are beyond our control. And this morning, we will speak to how we ought to deal with the issue of fear. In Psalm 34, we see the issue addressed in a positive and negative way. David was someone who was abundantly familiar with the issue of fear and the occasion for it. Whether it was the fear of the threat of wild animals attacking his flock as a youth, facing down a fearsome giant in Goliath, or running for his life from the wrath of Saul. Fear was something that David had to deal with on a regular basis and would have to deal with for the rest of his life. Running for his life from his own son Absalom. And sometimes I find it encouraging. I find it encouraging that I believe it is something that David fought with himself. That fear is something that he had to deal with in his own life. That a man after God's own heart struggled with fear. And he had his victories and he had his failures. This morning, as we look to Psalm 34, we're going to see three aspects of David's appeal to fear the Lord. Three aspects of David's appeal to fear the the Lord. And we'll go through these, but the, the first one is David's testimony of his own fear of the Lord. The second is David's invitation to a corporate fear of God. And lastly, we will see the foundation of David's fear of the Lord. What was the foundation of David's fear? Now, as we turn to Psalm 34, I would encourage you to to turn there and keep a a finger there. What we're going to actually do is we're going to go backwards to to look at the uh, the occasion for which this was written that we find in 1 Samuel chapter 21. So I would encourage you to keep a finger in Psalm 34. That's where we will find ourselves. But we have to understand the, the historical context. And there's a little heading under Psalm 34 that tells you that the occasion for which this was written, and we're going to read through that real quickly in 1 Samuel 21, starting in verse 10. Now, uh, David is on the run from Saul, that he has already been anointed king, but finds uh, Saul is uh, after him for his life, that he has already seen the, realized the victory of uh, over Goliath, 
Uh, there is the, the phrase that Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands, uh, that Saul sees him as a threat and he is on the run of, after being advised from Jonathan to run for his life. So David finds no safety within the, the land of Israel. And it says in verse 10, David rose and fled that day from, the, from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Now, Achish, if you will see in Psalm 34, in the heading of Psalm 34, it says Abimelech, um, same person, uh, that Abimelech would have been his title, somewhat like Pharaoh. Um, but David runs uh, to Gath. Now, this is the land of the Philistines. Abimelech ruled in the land of the Philistines. So if you were thinking strategically of a place where David might be able to find safety, it's probably not in the area where he is known for striking down thousands. But that is where he finds himself. And it says, the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. I don't know if David expected to be unrecognized. If he went to this land thinking that he could lay low he could blend in, look like the others around him. But he gets there and he's immediately outed. They know who he is. And what is David's reaction? We see it very clearly. He is what? He is afraid. The same David who stood before Goliath and said that he had the living God on his side now stands before Abimelech afraid. So what does he do? Verse 13, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made much marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. He pleads insanity. That is what David chooses to do. He pretends to be out of his mind. He couldn't be David. David's not insane. David doesn't let drool run down his beard. This must be someone else. At least that is his desire for them to think. And Achish, they bring David. They're probably very proud, right? They're like, oh, I'm, I'm in for a promotion right now. We're going to bring Achish, David, and he can do with him whatever he wants. This is going to be really good, right? Remember what happened to Samson? before the, the time of the kings, like, ah, oh, we're, we're, we're in line for a promotion right now. And they bring David drooling from the beard. He's like clawing at the gates. He's acting like a madman. Achish, verse 14, said to the servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Like, do I lack for insane people around me? We have plenty of those people. Why are we adding to this, to this group of people? I don't want this guy around. And so we see the beginning of the next chapter, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. 
He runs away and he escapes. This is in the, the southern part of Israel in the Shephelah. You see a series of caves uh, out in the middle of nowhere. And he hides in a cave and many find him and come to him and begin forming uh, his mighty men there in Adullam. And I believe it is at this in this cave that David pens Psalm 34 on the heels of this experience where he has found himself before Abimelech fearful. This, this Psalm is actually one of those alphabetical Psalms where each verse starts with the consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, something that escapes obviously our English translations. Uh, but it is a poem for David to celebrate the fear of the Lord. And I think there is, there is debate as to whether David was in the right or in the wrong when he feigned insanity before Abimelech. I think the answer to that debate is in David's reaction. He was fearful. He was afraid. Were he standing for righteousness and doing what is right, there would be no occasion for fear. But he understood that he had made a foolish decision and he reacted in fear. I think that when we consider the historical context and the psalm that David wrote reflecting on it, we can come to the conclusion that David realized he was not fearing the Lord, but that he was fearing man. David looks back at the situation and realizes how quickly his flesh pushed him to fear. And beyond that, he reflects on God's faithfulness despite his own doubts. And with this in mind, let's turn to the Psalm 34. The first aspect of David's call to fear the Lord is seen in verses one through seven. And it's David's own personal testimony of the fear of the Lord. David's personal testimony of the fear of the Lord. He starts by declaring out his determination to praise the Lord in verse one. Verse one says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. At all times, regardless of the circumstance, David says, I will praise the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. He shows his determination to not allow the circumstances of his life to affect his praise to God. Circumstances change, but God does not. There is always a reason, David says, to praise the Lord. Even when the circumstance is the darkest, the situation is the most grim, David says, it is my determination in those moments to bless the Lord, to find a reason to give him praise. Because no matter how dark the situation is, God is faithful and God is worthy to be praised. If your heart's focus is on praising the Lord, then the circumstances that you face won't sway your heart. That is a lesson that David learned before Abimelech. Now he says he will bless the Lord. And you will notice in your translation, most likely it has L-O-R-D, all capital letters. That is the covenantal faithful name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah. It is God's covenantal faithfulness. So when you see that, it is the author is reminding you that God is covenantally faithful to Israel, to his own. 
And it is interesting as you go through this chapter, the name of God, Yahweh, is used 16 times. You start to see repeated patterns, right? When we study the word of God, we want to look for repeated words or patterns, phrases that we can take home. And one of those in this chapter is that David is perpetually calling us on us to remember the covenantal faithfulness of God. Verse two, he says, I will boast in the Lord. He says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. David doesn't boast in his own abilities. He doesn't look at his own physical abilities and say, this is what I will stand on. He realized he attempted that when he appeared before Abimelech and that failed. He doesn't reflect on the situation and point out how brilliant he was to fake insanity. He doesn't look and say, thank you, Lord, for giving me the foresight to act insane before Abimelech. He says, no, no, my boast is not in myself and my own failures. Praise God for, for delivering me from my own foolishness. And this isn't a casual boasting, but this is a boasting. This, this Hebrew word, it comes from the soul. It comes from the deepest parts of your heart. It's an, an exuberant, emotional praising and boasting in the Lord. And it comes from a spirit of humility. Humility understands that there is nothing that we can do to change our circumstances from what God's will is. For David, God's will was for him to be on the run. For him, God's will was for him to be his life to be in danger at every turn. And anyone who would help him as well. It is trusting in God's control and not our own. And in light of that, he says in verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So he reflects on God's own provision in his own life and says, now we all have opportunity to praise God together. Join me in magnifying the name of the Lord. This leads to corporate worship. How you respond to circumstances of uncertainty does affect the corporate body. When you stand strong and rely and boast in the name of the Lord, in light of adversity, in the face of darkness, you provide the corporate body of God an occasion to praise his name. We don't keep those victories and those times of uncertainty to ourselves. Sometimes we get together and we want to put on a brave face and how are you doing? Yeah, everything's great. Everything's fine. Not letting anyone know that the facade that you are wearing before them is is cracked and brittle. Not letting them in on the, the situation in your life that you are struggling with. The circumstances that are weighing you down on a daily basis. And you bear those yourself. What David does here is he lays out his own heart. He lays out his own foolishness. And he says, look what God has done in light of of these circumstances. Now let us corporately worship the Lord together. That is why we bring our struggles to each other so we can rejoice in the faithfulness of God in light of those adversities. We don't hold those in. It robs God of glory. 
He says in verse 4 that he delivered me from my fears. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. I recall Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? The prophets of Baal are cutting themselves and prostrating themselves over the sacrifice and, and pleading for Baal to come and consume the sacrifice. And Elijah says, oh, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's sleeping. And Elijah prays to the Lord and fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice because the Lord heard the call of his own. Let us not move on from this thought where he says, I sought the Lord and he answered. We do not serve a distant God. We do not worship a a God who created and then removed himself from the creation. We serve a God who is involved. And not only that, but when we cry out to him, God answers. And David here cries out to God, despite his own sin and his own foolishness leading to the situation that he found himself in. God had the right to ignore me and say, I'm going to turn you over to give you what you deserve. You didn't trust me in the situation. You were fearful. But God says, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in mercy and love. And when I cried out to him, he answered me. Even when I was relying on my own strength, which was actually my own weakness, God heard me. And notice, he says, he delivered me from all my fears. He delivered me from all my fears. Interestingly, it does not say he delivered me from all of my circumstances. For David, his situation remained the same. His circumstance was the same. The anointed God, the anointed of God to rule Israel is living in a cave in the middle of nowhere. He says God, God doesn't deliver him from these circumstances. God delivers him from his fears and allows him to continue to live in those circumstances that drove him to fear. God understands that we are so often driven to fear. God understands our weakness. He's acquainted with it. If you look at times in the Bible where God has told his people not to fear, this is not a, by any means an exhaustive list here, but to Abram, he said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. When he was calling him to what was an insane call to leave his land and and to go, not knowing where, but God was going to make a great nation out of him. To Hagar, when she was driven out by Sarah, he said, fear not, I will protect you. To Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. To Joshua, when the kings of Canaan joined together to fight Israel, he says, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. To Elijah, when he was charged to go and prophesy the coming death of King Ahaziah, he said, do not be fearful. 
do not be afraid. To Hezekiah, when the nation of Assyria was buckling down upon them, Isaiah comes to him and says, do not fear the Assyrians. God is in control. God understands that we are daily faced with fears. God understands our weakness. God understands that we are driven to fear and his promises. He will deliver us from that fear. In verse five, he leaves us unashamed. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Like Moses descending from the Mount of Sinai, his face glowing because he stood before the presence of God. Those who stand before the presence of God in the midst of fear will never be put to shame. Instead, we will have the radiant faces of bravery in the Lord. Verse six, he says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him, saved him out of all his troubles. He's like, this poor, pitiful, foolish person, this weak, young man, me, this, this weak vessel, I cried out to the Lord and God heard me. Again, it isn't that David's life was perfect and smooth sailing. He's reminding us that it was anything but that. But he was resolved to trust in the goodness of God to pull him through these difficult circumstances. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear in him and delivers them. Now, time does not allow to, to go through all of these circumstances. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. If you see a angel of the Lord, that is an angel of the Lord. If you see the angel of the Lord, it is most likely the pre-incarnate Christ. And David says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. This same angel of the Lord that was struck down 185 Assyrians who were sieging Jerusalem. The same angel of the Lord that appeared before Balaam's donkey to stop him cold in his path, that stopped Abraham from sacrificing Isaac, that appeared before Hagar after she became pregnant with Ishmael. The same angel of the Lord, David says, is protecting me. He is about me. He is encamped around me. Now this verse has very uh, special uh, meaning to me. I, after I graduated from, uh, from college, I went on a missions trip to Uganda and our last week of ministry there, our fifth week, uh, was spent in a very impoverished part of Uganda. There was a lot of instability. Uh, the, the bishop and the pastors were almost at fisticuffs, uh, with us. And, we had heard stories of uh, missionaries being assaulted and robbed, buses being burned and shot up by the Lord's Rebellion Army that was active in Uganda. And we were out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, we had been showing these films, and we showed the Jesus film uh, uh, projected on this big screen out in this field, and it was translated into Lugandan so the people could, everyone could understand. And uh, the next night, they were showing a different film after we had preached and taught all day. Uh, there was a different film being showed, and there was almost a riot because the people wanted to watch the Jesus film over again. And there, were, uh, there was a lot of instability and fear that night. And here we were, uh, 
American college students living in tents in the middle of a field. And I have uh, never felt spiritual uh, opposition as much as I felt it in that moment and in that day where I felt like I was looking at people and the people were not looking back at me. And it was scary and it was frightening. And we decided, the guys decided that we would take turns staying up at night to protect our tent city that we were dwelling in. We had five little tents that we were staying with in the middle of the field. And I'm sitting there and thinking, trying to stay awake, and I'm sitting in a chair in the middle of all these tents with my only protection being a mag light. And I'm sitting there with a mag light in my hand, this like little American like, <laughs> youth, uh, and scared out of my mind that these people are going to riot and come across the field and tear us apart and steal everything and do whatever they'd like to us, as uh, some stories that similar events had happened recently. And this verse came to my mind that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And I thought to myself, if I was sitting here in the midst of these tents and I knew I had Navy seals in the tall grass around our tents protecting us, that I would be able to sleep soundly that night and trusting the fact that I was safe, that I would have nothing to fear because those Navy seals would keep me safe. And this verse popped into my mind. That's why it's so important to have scripture in your mind for, for times when you need it. And I needed this verse in that time. And I thought, I have the angel of the Lord encamping around me. Who do I have to fear? So I went to sleep. <laughs> and we woke up in one piece, praise the Lord. <laughs> but David was very familiar with this, even more so that the angel of the Lord was protecting him and camping around him and is the same for us. The second aspect of David's appeal is found in verses 8 through 14. We see David's invitation to fear the Lord. David's invitation to fear the Lord. He has celebrated his own testimony, his own experience of how, how God has delivered him from his fears. And now he says, now we have to praise God. Now we all must fear the Lord. He says in verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now I have to be honest, there was a time when I really struggled with the idea of taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't know if you've ever seen the bumper sticker um, where it says, try God. If you've seen that. It, it, almost this mentality of if you're walking around the food court at the mall and people are standing out with their food on toothpicks waiting for you to sample their delicacies so that you, you can eat them and say, that's what I want to buy. That's what I want to purchase. This idea of taste and see, it, it felt like that to me. But what David is saying is that this is not a sampling and take it or leave it and see if it meets your expectations. What David is saying here is this is a experientially know the goodness of God. And when you do, you will see that the Lord is good. 
If you trust God to uphold you in these dark circumstances, you will know, experientially know that God is good. Once you taste it, you will see. Once you experience the goodness of God, you will experientially know that God is trustworthy. He is worthy of your faith and your trust. If you likewise do not choose to place your trust in him, you will not grow in this knowledge of God. We substitute a diet on the goodness of God for shadows with no substance or soul fueling nutrition. Our souls are starving for God while we feed them the tempting and confectionary delicacies of the world that bring us nothing but rottenness. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. They will not be put to shame. If you do taste, you will see and you will be blessed. Conversely, if you fail to trust in the Lord in these circumstances, you will lose out on the blessing and fail to experience that refuge. And you will lack that knowledge to trust God in the next difficulty. And he calls on us in verse nine, fear the Lord, you, his saints says previously that, that God delivered me from all my fears. I was no longer fearing all of these circumstances. Rather, he says, now I fear the Lord. We ought to fear the Lord. There are multiple ways in which you could define the fear of the Lord. Predictably, Spurgeon has a good one. And it's short. It, he calls it a humble, childlike reverence a humble childlike reverence of God and a more modern voice predictably makes it longer, but still good. Says the fear of God is a heart level embrace of the intensity of his holy and sovereign authority over all. It is an admission that God is worthy of our admiration, devotion, reverence, and awe. But it is far more than an admission. It is a face to the ground, trembling in the soul, all of life submission to that God. A heart that senses how small, sinful, and undeserving we are next to him, yet still dares in Christ to draw near to him. Let me repeat that last part. It is a heart that senses how small, sinful, and undeserving we are next to God, and yet still dares in Christ to draw near to him. That is the fear of the Lord. Understanding how small and insignificant and weak you are, but knowing that in Christ, you can draw near to the sovereign God. Many have grown casual with God. We were speaking this morning in Sunday school about this a little bit. But God is a friend. God is a bro. He is your co-pilot. God is your buddy. God is your pal. One commentator said, there is nothing more unfriendly to a true piety than it's degenerating into irreverence and familiarity with God. 
fear gone, all solemnity vanishes and love becomes fondness. There's no fear of God in those words. It simply melts down to fondness. But yeah, yeah, he's, Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my pal. Jesus is our rock. The fear of God never fails us. We say, see in verse 10, he says, The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I believe the young lions that he speaks with here in comparison, in contrast to the second half of the verse, are those who don't seek the Lord. These are the people who seek to, to achieve things in their own strength. Oftentimes, these are the people that are hunting down the righteous. And David says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who seek to do it in their own strength find nothing. And he says in verse 11, let me teach you. Very similar to Psalm 51 after David's sin with Bathsheba. And he says, God, let, permit me to speak and to teach these things to the people. And he says the same thing here. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. David is instructing now. He transitions into wanting to teach this lesson to others. And it is interesting that he turns his attention to the children. That children need to learn at a young age to trust the Lord in times of uncertainty. When difficulty arises, they need to develop the muscle that will lift their eyes to the Lord and not on their circumstances. The fear of the Lord comes with a benefit. Verse 12. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? He's saying implicitly that it is understood that we desire good. We desire long days. That is the natural reward of fearing the Lord. It will go well with you. Your days will be lengthened. Never mind the eternal reality that lays before us. Reminds me of Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good. Those who love God, our good is being sanctified and made into the image of Jesus Christ. It is not a good of riches and wealth. It is not a good of prosperity. It is a good of being made into the image of Christ. And it's interesting that in verses 13 and 14, this fear of the Lord leads to a behavioral change in your life. Verses 13 and 14 say, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Interestingly, a pattern is also borne out in the book of Leviticus where we see obedience is repeat, repeatedly tied to a fear of the Lord. If you, We don't have time right now, but I would encourage you to go back and read through Leviticus 19, Leviticus 25, where we are commanded to do things because we fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord leads to obedience. We keep our tongues from evil. Our lips from speaking deceit. Like Paul says in Romans 12, 9, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. This is what God would call us to do. This is the fear of the Lord lived out practically. 
It is not one thing to live the life that you want to live, however it is that you want to live it. And then you find yourself in a difficult situation and you break glass in case of emergency and pull the handle and say, okay, God, now I need your help. There is no fear of the Lord in that behavior. God has no interest in delivering those who do not fear him. And David says here, those who fear the Lord will live for the Lord, will live as the Lord desires them to live. We don't just work on the fear of the Lord when we find ourselves in need of it. The third aspect of David's appeal for us to, to trust the Lord and to fear the Lord is in David's understanding of God's trustworthiness. David ends this time in Psalm 34 by giving us the reasons for why we can trust the Lord. Why do we take it to the bank? Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. It's like the, the old romance film where the man looks at the woman and says, I only have eyes for you, right? God says, his eyes are upon the righteous. His focus, his attention is upon them. His desires for goodness are for them. God desires your good. That may not look like you want it to look, but it is what you need. God's eyes are for you. His ears are towards your cry. God does not hear the prayers of the wicked, but he does of the righteous. And that is contrasted in verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The face of God is his judgment. You would rather have the eyes of the Lord and the ears of the Lord than the face of God. That's what David is saying. In Christ, we avoid this wrath. In Christ, we avoid this accountability. The face of the Lord was against Jesus Christ on the cross. That is why we can have the eyes of the Lord and the ears of the Lord, because the face of the Lord was against Christ on the cross when he bore our sin, our contempt, our failure, and our rebellion. Because Christ bore the face of God we now benefit by having the eyes of the Lord and the ears of the Lord. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. Similar to what David said earlier, when he cried out to the Lord, God heard. David is saying here, inviting people, when you cry out to God, God will hear. When the righteous cry for help, God hears. There is an ultimate deliverance for the saints, for all believers. None of the troubles that we experience have the faintest hint of eternity. There is no circumstance in which you dwell now. There is no trial that you endure at this moment that has the, the, the slightest hint of eternity in it. It will pass.
pass. And it is storing up for you an eternal weight of glory. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now you may recognize this language. What does the Lord desire? A contrite spirit, a broken heart. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. It's the exact same words that David uses here. God is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That is whom the Lord will deliver. In verses 19 and 20, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Probably recognize that last verse fulfilled in the death of Christ in John 19, 36. We are perfectly preserved by God. That is the message here. Trusting in God does not mean an end to the affliction. Trusting in God does not mean that he delivers you from the circumstance. Oftentimes, standing for righteousness leads to more difficult circumstances, will lead to more suffering. That is the reality of standing for righteousness. He's telling us that with or without God, we are going to suffer. But the afflictions of the righteous are many, but God will deliver the righteous from them. Despite the rising of the afflictions, God will deliver us from them all. You will carry none of them before the presence of God. David gives a warning in verse 21. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Saying, if you have not turned your heart to God, if you have not trusted him as the sovereign Lord, that affliction will destroy you. But not so for the righteous. That affliction will not slay the righteous. Those who hate righteousness will be condemned. I've said it before and I'll say it again. For the righteous, this is the closest to hell you will ever get. For the unrighteous, this is as close to heaven as you will ever get. That is the truth that we carry with us. That is why now is the time to throw yourself on the righteousness of God. Because he will protect you. He will preserve you. He will take you under his wings and shelter you. Finally, verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. For those that stand in the, under the wings of the Lord, there is no condemnation. There is no ultimate affliction that we fear as saints. 
Afflictions are the reality for the righteous and the unrighteous. We all deal with suffering. The only difference is that there is an end to the afflictions of the righteous. There is no end to the affliction for the unrighteous. The afflictions of this world are the best the unrighteous will ever experience. And a life of affliction will only be followed by condemnation without repentance. The Lord redeems his servants. That is how we are able to say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He redeems us from that life of sin and purchased us from our debt of sin. In Isaiah chapter 8, in closing, verses 11 through 15, I'm going to read part of it here. It says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that the people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. I entitled this message fear, but don't be afraid. We know that our hearts are prone to fear. Our hearts look for things to be afraid of, look for uncertainty, right? But David says here, don't fear those things. There is a greater thing to fear that will give you the fruit of righteousness. And that is the fear of God. That is what will bring you through these other fears. That is what will deliver us. Everyone deals with fear. Even David. David dealt with fear. We can be afraid of an array of different things. Some things, some people, some ideas, some events. But at the end of the day, there are fundamentally two kinds, two ways to fear the Lord. There are two ways to fear the Lord. The first is the fear of the Lord is that is the fearful expectation of judgment. You run from God because you are a child of wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. You refuse to give thanks to God or give him honor in order to avoid this fear. You block God out of your thoughts And you run to everything else you can to give you the illusion of control and satisfaction in this world. You may fear God, but there is no worship in that fear. You run from God. You surround yourself with everything and anything else that can distract you from standing before a God accountable for your own sin and your own rebellion. That is one fear. The other fear of God is what ought, we ought to strive for. It is an awe-inspiring, holiness-driving, world-defying, God-trusting, self-denying, Christ-entrusting fear. 
We place our fear in the Lord because Christ is our shelter from his wrath. We place our fear in God because he is good. We don't fear this world because our God controls it. We put our fear in God because our lives are in his hands and our hope is sure. We fear God and nothing else because we understand that if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? That is why we fear God. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we understand and are well acquainted with the reflex of our own heart to look to circumstances around us to make us fearful. Maybe we are fearful of a virus. Maybe we are fearful of an uncertain future. Maybe we are fearful of failure. Maybe we are fearful of financial insecurity. Maybe we are fearful of sickness. Lord, our hearts find so many things to fear. God, I pray that you would put in our hearts a desire to fear you above all else, to fear the Lord, that we may not be put to shame, that we may stand in strength in the face of uncertainty in the face of suffering and affliction, we cry out to you and we praise you that you hear the cries of the righteous and you hear us and your eyes are towards us and your ears are for us. But God, I pray for those today who stand and sit here who have not Put their faith and their trust in your son. Lord, your face of wrath is against them. And I pray that God, that you would open their eyes to the guilt that they have. Bring them to the cross where your righteous wrath was unrelenting upon Christ. And may they stand before you redeemed and safe before you. I pray, God, that we would develop in our minds a muscle to fear you, to look to you for our deliverance, and to not be concerned about anything this world can offer. Praise your name. Amen.